Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. And uh, now our next guest, another, another old friend of the pod... Another person who goes a long way back in the relationship with Paul McCartney. We're very fortunate to have been able to tempt him out today because he normally spends the summer months in his study <laughs> reading Russian novels and uh, counting the days until the return of live football. <laughs> I'd like you please to give a warm welcome because he's shy as a rule. Would you please welcome Danny Baker? So what's in your bag, Danny? Um, uh, the, the fee you've given me. You know that. I'm here to celebrate Paul. It's virtually Paul's, empty. At a price. Um, <laughs> it's not only Paul's today, it is uh, Sammy Khan, the great songwriter. Oh, right, of course. Uh, Hendrix played Monterey today. And on the 18th of June, 1948, uh, Columbia unveiled the, the new... The Long Plain Records? Uh, that was today. The Long Plain, the, L, the first album came out this day, 1948. And a six-year-old Paul McCartney told them, you're going to need two of those for an album I'm making in 20 years' time. <laughs> so it is today, the first album. So where the question we put to everybody is, when did Paul McCartney first come into your life? It's easy. One, two, three, four! That. All right. My sister, um, who was 12 when that came out, the perfect, she brought it in our house, and from the moment you heard Paul go, one, two, three, four! That literally counted down and counted into what we now know as pop culture, uh, and so that was the. F- and I knew it was. I'd, I'd seen them, and uh, and he was always the one you were drawn to. For, certainly for me, he was the um, 
It was the best looking one, the one I most identified with as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I was a good looking kid, I can't help. And you did, you just felt, at that point he was the leader of the group, and that's the voice you heard, one, two, three, four. He's also the last voice on the album, on a uh, uh, twist and shout, when it finishes, dum, 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 bam, 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 you hear him go, yeah! And yes, it's a wonderful do, moment, you hear him finish it. You, it, it. On quite a few records you hear Paul, you know, if you will, ejaculating like that. He, do, he does, you know, he does. Uh, and it's because he seems to love it so. And when he finishes, you listen, that song ends, he goes, yeah! And that was the last thing they recorded for the album. And you can tell we've got it, we've got lightning in a bottle here. But the first, he came into my life uh, with one, two, three, four, which is an incredible moment, launches pop culture. And uh, also my sister had a, a massive poster. She took down Cliff and everyone, mainly Cliff from her walls, and put up, I think Ravalli magazine put a, a fold out poster of that photo session they did on a beach somewhere. Oh, yes. Victorian, oh, yeah. Uh, yes. yeah. And there was Paul and a donkey and all of that. And so that, that's my earliest memories of it. And, and the Beatles. Right, so your sister was a, 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 an active fan. Was My she? sister was the girl who climbed Buckingham Palace gates, as you know. How old were, well, were you then at that time? Uh, I was only five or six. Five, yeah, five yeah. six. Uh, but it was so huge in our house, you know. Uh, my brother was older than me, my sister older than me. And we should all just sit around in the bedroom. I was very much the minor part of the family, but that's the effect it had on us. And there was nothing, nothing else played. Nothing else played in the house, upstairs and downstairs, as opposed to a... Uh, 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 you know, Jeff and Andy we had earlier. Um, my old man and my mum and dad had no real beef with pop music. They just let us go. They didn't bother about it one way or the other. They didn't think it was, you know, they quite, they didn't like it or anything. They just thought that's their music. It was fine. But we used to play it a lot. And uh, uh, one by one, the, the singles all started coming in. And I was raised on it. And my brother had the Beach Boys, really. But my sister was the Beatles. And she was the girl who climbed back in the Palace Gates. And it's not an apocryphal story. She really was. I called it a day. Uh, and I said, Paul's 80, she went, oh, don't say that, it's the worst thing. I mean, she, she wouldn't want me saying, but no, it is. I mean, Sharon's 72 now. Uh, and, uh, and I said, uh, I said, you met him, didn't you? She said, oh, so many times. She was wait outside his house all the time. And, uh, and she said, and sometimes we'd go across to uh, Wimpole Street. She said he'd go out uh, past us and, and, and get in the mini car and off they'd go. And uh, we knew they was going around to Jane's house, because early in the morning they was going around to her house. And she said, so we'd all go off to Wimpole Street and wait for him there, and they'd gone for breakfast, she said, or whatever. So we'd be there when they got there, because they'd be half an hour or something getting breakfast. And she said, and they'd get out of the car and look at us all, <laughs> turn of them always, and just think, how, how did you do that? But they'd been to breakfast, I forget that. And I said to her, uh, what did you say to him? She said, oh, I don't know, we just said anything and all. I said, did he talk to you? She went, sometimes. And then she paused, she went, he wasn't always that pleased to see us. <laughs> but Sharon was the lightning rod, and I, I uh, fortunately uh, took up some of the sparks. So, have you met him? Yeah, yeah, a few times. Um, uh, TFI Friday, he did a couple of three times. Uh, I, um, uh, the, the first time, uh, other than the, the story that everybody's got, the generic story of seeing him going through Solo Square, uh, uh, and there's, there's across Soho Square where the post office used to be. What's the name of that street um, that runs up to the... Uh, it runs up... To, uh, in, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the way that street is across the road from uh, Oxford Street. And there's a music shop, guitar shop. And I remember uh, uh, looking in my mate, like, guitars. A lot of Ivan Mayrant's guitars. There you go. 
and we were all looking in the window. There was loads of people looking in the window, and from behind us, a voice said, uh, I'd buy one of those if I could afford it, and we looked round, <laughs> and like you described, he's, he's made an art. I keep walking, but turning round. So we walk past and do that, but keep walking. There's a Pizza Express on the corner of uh, Dean Street, just around the corner from his office. Yeah. On a corner. On a corner. And uh, I've been in there when it's been full at lunchtime, and he's gone past the window. And pretty much the whole restaurant just stood up <laughs> and applauded. <laughs> And he just, he's gone round, waving all the way round. Well, when he, when he was on TFI, he was, I can't remember what single it was. He, um, he was promoting, uh, I, I can't remember what it was. But it required him to uh, perform on his own, but with a, a, a bank of television screens behind him. Bank of television screens with him on each one playing different instruments and doing different things. It was technically very, very difficult, but that's what he was doing. And of course, TFI was live, and I used to get there about 10, 30, 11, and I went in. And I'm huge, you know, McCartney's on. And he was already there, and he was on the stage, and he was calling out technical things he wanted. And they were running through, and he was looking around at the screens and getting himself in sync and saying, you know, this one down here needs... And he was sort of directing, and then it stopped, because I stood in the empty, dark studio and watching him. And it stopped, and I've got a terrible track record of doing this, because I always find it breaks the ice most of the time. And uh, he stopped, and okay, okay, so... Take it back and we'll try again. And in that little gap, when he stopped talking, I went, you should have turned it in after Besame Mucho, right? That's what I said, <laughs> promise you. And he went, and we mentioned earlier, and I know it's self-regarding, but there it is, you, you forget people see you. And there's no reason I've done, you know, television shows of varying quality by that point. And, uh, he'd, uh, and he went like that. And he went, hey, hey. And he called my name, it's Danny Baker, right? And I said, yeah. And he went, hey, Besame Mucho, don't knock that. And he started playing it. Besame, Besame Mucho. He started playing it. So that was the well, one of the times I met him. He did TFI twice. And the second time, he stayed around and had a drink afterwards. He, uh, a good drink afterwards. He drank nothing but champagne. We kept that little bar we used to film in afterwards. Uh, in fact, I've, I've got drunk with George and Ringo uh, and... and and Paul, and when I met John in New York, I was extraordinarily drunk. I think I was drunk enough for both of us, so I've been drunk with all the Beatles in my head. Uh, but, uh, but certainly he did, yeah, and sitting, sitting there, just trying to say, yeah, this is all cool. You're Paul McCartney, and he's just sitting there. He likes to put his hands behind his head and stretch out when he's talking, and he does listen rather than join in the conversation too much, I found. Yeah. So yeah. a record, we should have a record, shouldn't we? One record that would explain Paul McCartney to a Martian. Well, there's the right answer and there's my answer. The Go right on. answer, the right answer is yesterday, uh, because, uh, but it's not the smart answer, but the right answer is yesterday. It's just about the perfect song. It's, as we all know, it's been recorded more than anything else. It's yesterday. It's this monolithic song that fits in all periods. It's like a, a madrigal from Broadway. You know, it's everything. And you could say that's what human music is like. You could make any arrangement of that with any kind of palm orchestra, string orchestra, and you can do what you want with that. That's it's all there. Because he wouldn't know anything else about Paul McCartney, but yeah, yesterday, okay. And that's, that's as good an example of all kinds of music across it. But in terms of my own choice, uh, in the early 90s, they used to um, put out CD singles, and CD singles were put out in various formats to keep it selling. See, and there was one called Hope of Deliverance, 
not his greatest track, it's pretty average McCartney track by his standards. And Hope of Deliverance came out as a single with a uh, B-side, and then they put out Hope of Deliverance with the remix of Hope of Deliverance and the B-side. Uh, then uh, there'd be a vinyl version of it, and then they put out Hope of Deliverance with three extra tracks on it. And one of the extra tracks was something called Kicked Around No More. And it's one of the greatest Paul McCartney tracks, Kicked Around No More. And it only is available on this fourth edition of... He's never put it on anything else. I don't say this just to go deep cut or anything, but it is one of the most extraordinary songs. And if you could say... Why is it so extraordinary? It's just a great song, because it's a great, great, great Paul McCartney song. If we put it on there for people who don't know it, you'd all go, well, that should have been lead track on any album. It's just one of his great songs. It's kind of a a bit um, during his kind of part electro thing, but it's very slow and very moody, and it's heartbreakingly beautiful. Uh, A period in his life, I think it was when... I think it was uh, as Linda was diagnosed around that time, and it's a very a lyric where he says, uh, "I don't want to be kicked around no more," you know, and it, that's basically his, his voice. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful Paul McCartney track. And if you said to a Martian, that was put out, thrown away. He didn't make anything. He didn't think that much of this. He didn't. No. He just saw no. this. Oh well, I've got that other track. Any other artist would have lived their career on it. And so you could say, what kind of talent would just throw that away? Uh, and if you, it's, the only place you can really find it is on YouTube now. It, it's on this one CD single that was put out in 1992 and nowhere else. It's on no compilation. And I'll, I'll stand by it. If you listen to Kicked Around No More, it is astounding record. But you fight the corner, don't you, for what I think a lot of people would call the corny songs that Paul McCartney I know, uh, well, and, I, and, and rightly so. I Pete Pafidis uh, wrote a thing yesterday and, and said pretty much the same thing. That all these songs that are supposed to take him down a peg or two, like the Frog Chorus uh, and uh, Obla Dee Obla Da and Honey Pie, they're all absolutely stone magnificent. Yeah. Because if you're not kind... Uh, no one else can do that. Uh, there's a great story of uh, George Harrison, when he's been interviewed once, said, um, uh, oh, he said, I'll, I'll see all these interviews with um, rock stars. He said, no, you know, I see Eric when he's being interviewed and people. And they say, what were you listening to growing up? And it's always Lead Belly and Blind <laughs> Lemon Pugh and, and Muddy Waters. He said, well, in our house, we had Gilly Gilly, Austin Pfeffer, Cats and Ellen Bogan by the sea, and the runaway train came down the track and she blew. He said, they don't seem to have had that in their house. He said, yeah, when you get to be a teenager. He said, but I grew up on those songs. He said, and crap like, I'm a red toothbrush, you're a blue toothbrush. And he said, that must influence what you do. He said, but I've never seen that in any other interviews. McCartney puts that front and centre. I'll tell you something about, um, I'm a red toothbrush, you're a blue toothbrush. It was written by Richard Sheridan. I'm a, I look, this, I'm a red toothbrush, you're a blue toothbrush. Written by Richard Sheridan, who had a few goes of being a singer, and then found out it was more in writing, and then beyond that, more in publishing. Because Joel said, it must have influenced us somehow, even a terrible tune like that. Well, I'm a red toothbrush, you're a blue toothbrush, written by R- Richard Sheridan. Immediately, there's a kind of Beatles connection, because of Tony Sheridan, but there's no relation there. Uh, However, uh, Richard Sheridan, the only thing we know for sure about him, that wasn't his real name. He changed his name lots of times. He was actually born Isaac Kupnik in the East End. His parents, he was Polish, Isaac Kupnik. And uh, once he couldn't get much by the way as a singer, he started writing. And then him and his partner, who was, I'll give you his name in a minute, they said, we're going to publishing. And he changed his name to Dick James. Oh, of course. 
And Dick James wrote, I'm a red toothbrush, you're a brew toothbrush. George Harrison doesn't know this. George not only did he influence you, he owns you. And, that, and that's what he did. His partner was um, uh, Stanley Bronn. Eleanor Bronn, of oh, course, was in, course, it was yes, in Help. Course, yeah. uh, Max Bygrave sang, I'm a pink toothbrush or a he blue did. toothbrush. And Max said, people hate that song. They always, so I do, Max. They always tell me I hate that song. But it sold millions, not records, toothbrushes, right? That's what he used to say. <laughs> Good old Max, that's what he said. Anyway, um, and Max, of course, was the compare of the, night, the Royal Variety performance when they said, rattle your jewellery. Everything is connected. But McCartney never forgot that. And he left himself open to every influence he had. And so, and thank God, the Beatles' albums are broken up, Yellow Submarine and songs like that, because he can do that, and they needed it. And if you don't, if you just concentrate on one influence, what have you got? I'll tell you, the Rolling Stones. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but McCartney, McCartney, no, no really, you had diminishing returns for their first four or five albums. It's fine going to the Chicago Delta. He didn't. He went off to Disney and packed in Pan Alley, and I used to, as a kid, I used to love those tracks. You know, uh, uh, something like uh, Honey Pie, when I'm 64. Oh, oh, they're just absolutely wonderful. Music hall and the ballads. Because you, you say, swing yeah, and jazz. Yeah, I, I wrote Here, There and Everywhere, and I wrote that. Uh, the Frog Chorus, it, he, owned, he bought the Rupert Bearback catalogue. Yeah. Who's he going to aim it at? You know, students. He wrote that for kids. And my kids used to love that. It's the perfect song for a Rupert film. And yet people try it as a rod to beat him with. Yes, it's, he yeah. wrote that, and it's, it's a like, brilliant song. I'll catch you out. Yeah. You wrote the rock. I know. That's right. Oh, you, you wrote High Diddly D and Actor's Life for me. How can you be any good? You know, Jagger in his best moment, God love him. Most of the songwriters of the 60s, they don't have the nerve to do that. They don't have the nerve to write those, you know, sing-along songs. Paul did. Well, yeah. I'm doing it, I've got yeah. this, well, let's do that. Yeah. John, God love you, you don't always have to pitch him against it. He forgot how to do that. He forgot songs have a hook and a chorus and are supposed to cheer people up. And it becomes too great. No, yeah, honest, what about Paul this business did. of cheering people up? Because, yeah, I think Mark touched upon it earlier, you know, that we tend to... Is it the case we tend to overvalue misery in pop oh, music? Oh, always. And certainly rock music does. Rock music has always done that. They see authenticity as being someone who don't smile a lot. Like that, that's it. And it's not true. I mean, you know, this, this new Sex Pistols film, they try and make out 1976, everyone was miserable and listening to Brotherhood and Man doing Save All Your Kisses <laughs> for Me, and it was all Emerson, Lake and Palmer. No, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't. It's in 1976 that the charts was uh, the boys are back in town, Thin Lizzy, Utamir, everything, the real thing, young hearts run free. We cannot judge history because Johnny Rotten sat in his bedroom with his thumb up his ass listening to Wayman Dahl. That's his fault. <laughs> That's his fault. <laughs> McCartney, and honestly, there's, of course, of course, you know, uh, you know, depression gets a lot of, of course it does, if you should, we should talk about it. But occasionally, let's hear it for the euphoric. Yeah. And McCartney's back catalogue has plenty. It's something for everyone, you might say. Yeah. And I will take even McCartney's biggest misstep, which is, uh, give my regards to Broad Street, over some time in New York City, which only a maniac could sit through. Uh, but that's not to put Paul against any... Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's absurd, this it, idea that he wrote these silly it, songs. Yeah, he did, he wrote some of the greatest ever made. But is it fair to say that, that, that John Lennon without Paul McCartney didn't fare as well as Oh, without, oh without a doubt. I mean, it's, without a doubt. I think it's fair not, to say that. I mean, I John had problems and all that, and I don't think it's... Again, it, 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 you, you don't hear any pop songs out of John out of that, and it's all gritted teeth and, 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 and diminishing returns like walls and bridges. 
uh, in, uh, um, mind games. They're not great albums, but Paul just kept knocking them out there, knocking them out there, knocking them out there, and at least half of it would be any good. Um, and I think, as, as you said in the first half, it was the best day in, in the Beatles' lives when McCartney said, can I join you? And I think when they broke up, you can see McCartney knows. He knows, yeah, I can go on and have a great solo career. We all can. I don't want to. I want, I want, us, I want to do this. But the rest of them are too like, oh, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to go out there and... And, and they, they, there's too much shade and not enough light, and McCartney so, was the light. So, so that was your, your major takeaway from Get Back, was it? Yeah, that and the, the wonderful freedom of being in a band, then there's nobody in Get Back with a laminate on. There's no security people around. There's none of what we used to call it, TFI, the scribble, which is all these people with clipboards asking, what are you doing here, what are you doing here? And there's none of that. Yeah. There's people just coming and going and coming and going. Uh, uh, yeah, and it, it, it's, it's, it's just marking out the, what songwriting has always been, you know? By the way, it's, it's, I mentioned it's Sammy Khan's birthday today, the great writer Sammy Khan, uh, who said about pop music, which I wasn't a fan of, he said, uh, I'm not a fan of modern pop music. I mean, Sammy Khan wrote everything, as you know, first up in the 20th, 20th century. He said, uh, lyrically, they can't do it. In fact, I'll tell you this. I can eat alphabet soup and pass better lyrics than what I hear in the charts. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Sammy's birthday today as well. So is there a story that you could do, a particular McCartney story that you've always thought I'd, I'd say no, because I, don't, I wouldn't profess to know him. Um, I got, say I got drunk with him, I'd knocked about with him, but no, I've only, like the rest of us, read all the books. In terms of apocryphal, not apocryphal, in terms of uh, just... Uh, my sister, again, if I come back to Sharon, uh, I remember going to see, uh, well, I saw Help 17 times. She used to take me, but she saw it 32 times. This is only in, a, in two weeks. She used to come out in, East, in North London, and you had to go up to North London to see it, and she had to go to every performance of that, and as you know, the girls sat in there all day and wouldn't be shifted. Yeah. Uh, you, you just watched well, the film. You'd see it two or three times in a, a row, wouldn't you? Because yeah. you'd just get around. Well, they, that's why they put on that film Mozambique. If you look, it was backed up by a film called Mozambique, which was a two-hour, sweaty, dialogue-heavy story about oil corruption in Nigeria. Because they thought it'd get all the girls out so they could see all the seats again, but they, they didn't. They, were all, they just sat... They brought, they brought packed lunches and they, they, they underestimated Having the attrition of yeah. teenage girls. And I saw... I mean, that means I've seen Mozambique 17 times, right? Yeah. And then it came to South London and we saw it again. But... Uh, so what was it? This 65, I'm eight. And even I knew this was dirty. When Paul shrinks, you know, he shrinks in help. And he goes all little, uh, and he's got a Wrigley's wrapper around him, uh, and he walks past a giant ashtray, and uh, then he shrinks back, he, sorry, goes back up into his suit, and he comes next to Ringo, and he's in his suit again, and he turns, he goes, eee, I'm all sticky, right? And the girl went, I'll lick it off your Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone, oh, I will, I will, I will. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't quite know what's going on, but it sounds filthy. My yeah. sister was like, oh, I'll lick it off your Paul, she shouted out. Similarly, my uh, friend Tommy Hodges was, uh, the, uh, moved out of where we lived, and his parents took over a post office in Tenterden in Kent. And inevitably, one day, Paul McCartney came in, because it's not too far from right. And as Paul rung me up after, he said, uh, Tom rung me up and said, Paul McCartney's just been in. I said, Has he, what, did he, what did he buy? He said he bought a ball of string and a load of brown paper. <laughs> and I, he said, I couldn't think what to say. So I said, wrapping, up, wrapping something up, Paul. <laughs> and, he, and he said, he said, yeah, a dead body, right? And yeah. I went, and he said, and I laughed. And he said, and he leant in and said, Ringo. And he went, <laughs> <laughs> now that kind of chatty story, 
it's, it's just as good for me as, as a, a big biography. Ringo. And he went out. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Wrapping up dead body of Ringo. Y- you must have seen him play live. Have you got any Not many times. Right. Um, I, got, I got told off. I went to see him at one of his sort of private things in a little club. And I, I don't go to... I have been at many concerts since about 1985. And uh, this was in the late 90s. Early... Anyway, it was a little club over at King's Cross. And it was about uh, 200 people there. Tiny little club. And I haven't been to a concert for so long. And immediately came on, they all got their phones out. Now, as you know, I don't have a phone. I, I, that's no big deal. But, and I've never seen it. I'm standing there and we're getting all this. And I... I'd had a couple, but I'm, I'm like me dad. I said, put your phones down, put them down. Put them down. I started shouting all these people. And all like, put your phones down. And they did. They all put their phones down. Everyone's just lunatic. I said, can you believe this? My son said, that's what that happens there. Now that's what they do. I said, not here, not while we're doing this, because we couldn't see anything. And then this one Japanese fellow put his phone up again. I said, put your phone down. He went, oh, okay, you have shouted at me enough. (laughs) (laughs) I probably should just chill out a little bit. So I saw him there, and the most extraordinary time, live Paul McCartney, I stood in the car park one night. I was on my way home from the West End, uh, uh, doing the show at BBC London, and I came up at North Greenwich car park, which is right by the O2, and I heard this distant, booming version of Take it away, And it was McCartney sound-checking in the O2. And everyone was standing around in the car park. It, it, it was, you just wanted to hear what would be next. It was very, you know, like the bootlegs we used to buy in the 70s. Yes. But we all stood there and thought, we're kind of getting a free McCartney thing here. And I'll give it about half hour. And he comes running through the set, and it was just so cool. We were just coming out the O2 and booming around the car park outside it. So, seen him properly as well. Uh, and I know it's the other night Springsteen came on. Didn't he with him uh, last night? Was oh, it did he? Right. Springsteen. But it must be so weird for Springsteen and Jagger and everyone, no matter how huge you are, even Dylan, to say, well, look how huge we are. There's, no, oh, there's Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah that's There's different. Paul McCartney. It'll be like... Um, as Tony Bennett once said about Sinatra, he said, a singer like Frank only comes along once in a lifetime. Why did it have to be my lifetime? <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. <laughs> and I think even Dylan must think that. Yeah, we've solicited some questions actually via Twitter about people. I don't know if these people are here. Is David Shaw here? David Shaw, who asked, just, uh, I can't see anybody. Uh, what's your favourite McCartney gig that you've been to and why? Have you got a particular favourite? Oh, God. Um, well, I went to the Hammersmithonian about, it must be about, I don't know, 12 years ago or something, with my nieces. It was just brilliant because it was my nieces and they were about 17 and 19 or whatever. And they were obsessed with the Beatles, obsessed with McCartney. Yeah. And had decided to reenact what they thought people would have done at, or what people did at Beatles concerts in the, in the mid-60s. So there they were in their kind of short dresses with that, screaming and yelling and pulling their hair and just going absolutely mental. And I felt really proud of them, actually. Because yeah. everyone else was much, much older and sitting there watching McCartney. And there they were just going completely bonkers, proper Beatles hysteria. And that kind of lifted yeah, it for beautiful. me. And it was just really good. And I just also was stunned by the fact that from the beginning to the end, which was two and a half hours, no support act, I think, every single song, you cannot believe what's, um, what's available to play. There's a wonderful moment in one of the live DVDs, as it was, the one that came out about 20 years ago. It's in the States, and he's running through, you know, as he can. And he does um, uh, For No One. And uh, after the initial, whoa, once he starts it, the day breaks, your mind aches, you find it all. And it, yeah. the camera just goes slowly through the crowd, and there's a lot of boomers with their grandkids yeah. on their shoulders, and they're all gone, they've all gone. Oh, yeah. And in her eyes you see nothing, no sign of love behind the tears. And they're singing along, they're trying to, but they're just gone. Yeah. And, and that's the, a really powerful moment. It and really, there's still songs that he hasn't played. He's started playing in spite of all the danger recently, hasn't he, I think? Has he? And, oh, yeah, I think it. so, which is incredible, really. But, I mean, he's never done Oh Darling, for example. There are songs I think he's never performed live, so he's well, still got all that stuff in the I mean, he's, in the, in the he, he's, he's, like they're saying, Spinal Tap, too much perspective. Uh, Paul McCartney is now six years older than Bing Crosby was when he died. Yeah. Wow. I know, I know. And yeah. you think Bing Crosby's the oldest person. But yeah. Bing Crosby, <laughs> Bing Crosby's passed at 74. Yeah. McCartney's now six years older than Bing Crosby. Dave, your favorite. Yeah, well, I, 2003, I was very, we were working on, a, again, another magazine with, with Paul, Paul McCartney, and he said, we're playing at Earl's Court, come bring the family. And normally I'm the last person in the world to ever say to my children, you should go and see so-and-so or whatever. Oh, I don't yeah, like yeah. doing that at all. And we just said, does anybody want to go and see Paul McCartney? And they all pretty much straight away, yes, we yeah. want to go. And they were all kinds of ages, I don't know, 9, 14 or whatever, 18. And he just came on, it was a low goodbye and it was all that. And they were just utterly enthralled by the whole thing. And, and I always think it's, it's one of the most, most treasured moments as a family. Because as my wife always says, the best moments in a family are when you're all together doing something you love and yet you can't talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, and that, so that was just the perfect memory, you know. That was a, a demonstration of the ability of that music to just communicate right across generations. Right, right. I mean, I, I used to, um, on Radio 1 and NIMS were the days, uh, I uh, used to do it. I did really quite a few times. As on um, trip, the live fantastic is live album. There's a version of "Get Back," which starts. Um, it just goes whoa, whoa, yeah, yeah, whoa, whoa, 
oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone starts clapping and screaming. And then the band started to get back. And it's quite a long lead into it. And I used to just say, just to tease people and emotionally play with them. Uh, I said, I imagine in, at Live Aid, Lennon hadn't been shot and people, was, they still hadn't been back together. But at the end of Live Aid, these rumours were everywhere. I said, that stage at Wembley, it's night time there, it's dark and people are saying, oh, we've heard, we don't know, someone said they've seen, they're here somewhere. I said, and then it's still pitch black and the lights are gone down, everyone's screaming and shouting and you just hear, whoa, and I start playing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, and then cameras start going near the stage. And then somebody picks out in one of the camera flashes as a white suit. Is that John Lennon? You know, is that, we don't know. And then the dum 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 I said, and then the voice goes, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. And the lights go up and there they are. Georgia was a man. Well, the emails and, and texts you said, I've had to pull a car over, I've gone. I'm in floods of tears, don't do this. It is the most appalling trick to play on us. But that is an alternative reality that they would have, and there they are. And it's, we all know it's a good job they're not, you know. Uh, but if anyone would have pulled it together for that, he would have done. Uh, and, but that moment, you think, and then the lights go on, and you, you wouldn't be able to cope, you wouldn't. You're so fucking hell, you know. I could cope with, you know, Bowie coming back to life, but I couldn't cope with all the Beatles suddenly on the stage. That later would be too much of a shock. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, that's all for, for, for the moment. I'll move down one a little. Danny Baker. Thank you very much indeed, everybody. Bless you. Thank you. You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. Thank you, Danny. We're going to bring on our fourth and and final guest. We've all um, looked at McCartney from the perspective of people who are in his audience and people who bought his records. But uh, our our next guest uh, had a completely different angle on it because they were fellow commercial songwriters at the same time. Uh, In his case, writing for the Yardbirds and the Hollies and... Uh, obviously later on the 10cc catalogue and an enormous number of other people too. So it'd be really interesting to hear his, his professional take, I think, on McCartney's, well, what must have been a, a, many times an infuriating challenge. So please welcome the fantastic Graham Goulburn. Yay! Yes, indeed. That's true. Uh, great, Graham. How are you, my friend? How are you Graham Goodman, how exciting is that? Wonderful. Lovely welcome, thank you. So nice to see you. A pleasure to be here. So we should, well, I mean, we should maybe start with the same four questions. We've got an enormous number of things we want to ask you about songwriting. But, I mean, in terms of uh, McCartney, I mean, when did McCartney first come into your life? Can you remember the first being aware of his existence? Uh, yes, I can. Um, I used to get a, a magazine called Mersey Beat. And I'd heard Love Me Do and got totally enchanted by this strange bunch of people. And the first time I saw a picture of them, it, they were on a, what looked like a sort of a building site. And the, there were four of them, they had what would look like long hair. Probably my hair is not that long, you know, or is longer than theirs. Is it but the one anyway, where they're leaping in midair? Or no, they weren't leaping in midair. They were looking very serious. Yeah. They were all dressed differently. They had these fantastic guitars, which I'd never seen, because up to that point, we were kind of, me and my mates were sort of obsessed with uh, Cliff and the Shadows, so everyone had Fender Stratocasters and matching guitars, but they had Gretches and Rickenbackers and Hofner basses, so it was all really strange, and Paul was left-handed as well, so that looked different as well. Uh, And I guess I fell in love with them. 
uh, at that point. Uh, that, so that was really my first encounter with them, and Love Me Do made uh, change my life. And you've met him, presumably? Oh, yeah, a few times. Um, we had um, a studio in Stockport called Strawberry Studios, and uh, Mike McGear, who you mentioned before, was uh, going to record an album at our studio, and Paul was going to produce it. And I remember we were in the middle of recording the Sheet Music album, this is about 1973, and like you said, and what everybody said, there's no one like Paul McCartney. And he walked through the door, and I couldn't speak. Um, but he was absolutely charming. He's used to making people feel at ease. He's been doing it all his life, really. Uh, he was very nice. I started talking to him about strings or guitar strings or something <laughs> stupid. Always an icebreaker. What are you talking about? Anyway, he was lovely. Uh, and uh, from then on, we saw him a lot because we were recording the uh, Sheet Music album and he was coming in later in the afternoon with Mike to record um, the Mike McGear album. Uh, and the studio was completely full of 10cc equipment and McCartney's equipment as well. So we used to like, sort of use a bit of his gear, like we used his Mellotron and on um, the Wall Street Shuffle and we used his uh, drum kit on, uh, on other tracks as well. So that album, which a lot of people think is 10cc's best album, was in a way imbued with McCartney being around, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Besides the fact that everything that we wrote uh, was definitely Beatles influenced. Because I always say, um, without the Beatles um, and McCartney, obviously, 10CC wouldn't have existed. So going back to your, you know, you've, you've seen him in Merseybeat, you've heard Love Me Do, yeah. and you know, all those records. And you're in, you're in bands in Manchester at the time. Yeah. What band were you in then? I was in a few bands. I was in a band with Kevin Godley uh, called The Mockingbirds. Right, okay. That was, that was well pre-10CC. So that was sort of mid-60s. But yeah, during the time... So I first... Be, I must have been 15 or 16 when The Beatles happened. The perfect age to be open to music. I mean, I was lucky anyway to be that age, lis listening some sort of like from 12 years old, listening to Elvis and Little Richard and the Everly Brothers, Eddie Cochran. I mean, every one of my generation was influenced by exactly the same people. And I'm sure McCartney was as well. Right. And so how did you, you know, what was your response to a new Beatles record? Was it, was it... It was a was big it raising event. the bar and so forth? Yeah, it was a major event. So you're going to buy it. It doesn't matter what it is. It's the Beatles. And you listen to it the first time and think, God, it's fantastic. Then the next record would have come out and you go, oh, shit. They've lost it. And then you listen to it the second time and you go, there it is. Bang. So can you think of specific... I can just imagine you as a songwriter dissecting that thing technically and, and, and looking for McCartney's signatures that you might possibly I, I hear emulate. McCartney's signature in, in a lot of things and I have to admit that I have um, been inspired <laughs> by his signatures. Uh, there's one thing he does for any musicians here. He'll start a song, say, um, Things We Said Today, A minor. Down, 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 down. And then he'll go to the next part, A major. 
That's a really weird thing to do. So weird that I thought, I'm going to have that. And I, <laughs> I did that in No Milk Today, has that going from the minor oh. to the major, and then going back to the minor again. So I, I thought that was just so fantastic. That and a few other things. I, Any more? This is fantastic. I, I, well, that's one of them. But For fear of uh, uh, alarming I, my learned friends. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I just have to say that because I grew up with the Beatles and McCartney, they run through my veins. Mm. Yeah. They made, I can I honestly say, they made me who I am in my, uh, as, yeah. a, as a musician and songwriter. Uh, and not, let's not forget him, him as a bass player as well. Oh. I was going to say, yes. One of the most influential this. bass players of all time. No, we were talking yeah, about this. This fascinates me, and I'm no musician at all, but it, Paul McCartney was made to play the bass in the Beatles. Yeah. He, he didn't really want to do it. The, the, the rest of them wouldn't do it. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience. Is with it? With see, <laughs> But like McCartney, uh, I, I, I'm a guitar, guitarist, um, McCartney's a guitarist, he's a bass player, he's a drummer, you know, he plays everything as well. I just play like guitar and, and bass. Um, but his influence can't be uh, underestimated. So he's so musical, like uh, James Jameson, who played on a lot of the uh, Motown records. Mm. He started playing melodies, you know, and took the bass out of just playing the root notes and the that a lot of bass players, and there's nothing wrong with that, but he just, he opened up a whole new world to uh, bass players. But there's, there's, it's interests me that, if this isn't too technical a question, but playing rhythm guitar, you're playing on beat and singing yeah. at the same time. Let's say you're singing. If you're playing the lead guitar, you're never going to be singing and playing the lead guitar at the same yes, time. Yes, you can. But the, well, you can, but it's not that often. But the bass player, in his case, is not only playing a melody, but he's playing often against the beat yeah. while singing. And if you look at those bits of footage of him playing All My Loving, whatever, he's also winking at girls in the front row. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how is that possible that somebody's mind... Bastard, that's you know, is. All My Loving and uh, I saw her standing there. The bass parts yeah. alone are so hard. I, I know, but As actually, a bass player, isn't that an astonishing well, achievement? Um, all I'll say is, I'm going to blow my own trumpet a little bit here, but um, the things we do for love, the bass part on that yeah. is very... Bum, like that and that I sing that on, on stage now with, 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 the ten, with 10 CC and, um, so, and somebody said to me how the hell can you do that but if you can do it you can do it so mm. it's one of those things it's not clever it's just I'm sorry I can do it <laughs> really you know <laughs> so um, going back to the, you know throughout the six, through the 60s so you were you, you, were a, you were in a band, but you were yeah. also writing songs, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Whereas he was, he was kind of taking the normal songwriting role, but within the band, wasn't yeah. he? Because he, he changed the business in that sense, didn't he? Did he did, very much so. So before the Beatles, really, if you wanted to make a record, you go to uh, Denmark Street, yeah. which is like Timpan Alley in, in London, and go around the publishers and say, have you got a song? Uh, and that's what we did as well. Um, and that was at the same time the Beatles started off. And me and many other people thought, well, if they can do it, I'm going to have a go at doing it. Mm. And they really did inspire, yeah. inspire a whole generation of people that might possibly never have 
started writing songs at all. Did you ever? But they gave, gave, you, gave ever, you courage. Did you ever feel like putting a song in their direction? Would you ever been so bold? Did you ever think, you know what? Because I know you did the Hollies and everybody, well, but did you ever think, I'll put one their way? Well, I would have loved to have done that. A funny story. Uh, my manager at the time said, I'd written a song, and um, he said, we should get that to the Beatles. <laughs> That's a manager. That's a good manager. I said, I think they're all right in that department. <laughs> but here's the funny thing. So he, Harvey, his name was, Harvey said to our publisher, I've got this song, I want to get it to the Beatles. So the publisher also said that that ain't going to happen. However, and this is the weird thing, the Yardbirds are supporting the Beatles and a uh, uh, Christmas show at the Hammersmith Odeon and they're looking to uh, record some outside material because they were basically doing like, a lot of standard rhythm and blues stuff up to that point but wanted to have some uh, commercial success. He says, I'm going to play the song to them and that became the first song that I wrote that was a hit which was uh, For Your Love in wow. 1965. So in that weird sort of way, that's really sort of ridiculous suggestion started my career <laughs> I think most songwriters will tell you this that if the song is good enough you will remember it so now I do it for a bit of insurance if I've come up with an idea but generally um, and I'm talking about writing something today and remembering it tomorrow in its complete form not less so you might not have written all the lyrics or anything but just the like the basic melody uh, so if it's any good, you'll remember it. And that, in, a, in its way, is a sign that the, the, the song has some sort of quality. Because I, I, I sometimes go back to listen to bits and pieces that I've written, and I go, mm, I know why I didn't remember it. It's not, not that good. <laughs> yeah. So it's true. Yeah. There's a, so there's a song on, um, I mentioned earlier on, called... Um, Kicked Around No More, which he never yeah. did anything with, but put it out on this, and he really must go and listen to it. But there's another one, which didn't even make it as far as that. It's called Yvonne. And again, it's only on YouTube. How it leaked out, I don't know. He's, he's not got the words. He's la la a lot of it. It is beautiful. And it's a classic McCartney kind of song, but yeah. it's just saying... I mean, that's the thing, you know, with all due respect to one of the greats here. It, it's the relentlessness of his talent. Yeah. And, and, and how profligate, it just, it just keep, seems to be able to do it and do it and do it. Even on recent albums, it's polite to say, you know, Elder Statesman, oh, it's a great album. But he's, he's genuinely are, you know, they, and, he, and, and they're packed with songs. If, you, if you're a songwriter, though, you, you will often write, because say you're doing an, a, an album or you're writing for a specific purpose, but quite often you get an idea and, and you've just got to write it. So what is going to happen to it afterwards is kind of irrelevant is the fact that you've got this idea for a song and you've got to get it out and then you go, ah, that's great or, well, it's not so great or I'll put that on a solo album or, or whatever. No. You see, you always said yesterday he had to ask people, this is, a, you... song, this is a song already, isn't it? Yes. Do you get that? Yeah, I do, <laughs> I do get that. And I remember writing something with the late Andrew Gold and he said, he said to me, you've not written that. I said... <laughs> said I bloody have you know <laughs> he said it's because there are some songs and McCartney has this quality because I actually could talk for hours about him but anyway <laughs> um, there's a quality in the song it's almost as you're hearing it it's almost like 
you know what's coming yeah. next. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a familiarity about what he can do that, that uh, touches you, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. Well, even when he's doing other people's stuff, I mean, I hate the phrase underrated album, usually means it's no good, but you like it. But that kisses on the bottom, yeah. which he just played, again, yeah. this thing I was saying standards, earlier, yeah. he's never shied away, like most rock and rollers do, from sentiment and his parents' yeah. record collection. Kisses on the bottom is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. wonderful. And to, to find time and also be able to say, look, you know, what I do is fine, but look at these guys. They were at it a long time before me yeah, in a different absolutely. field. He's brilliant at it. There's a song I'm always drawn to, which is uh, Martha, My Dear. Oh, yeah. Which is the most charming song about his dog. Yeah. Musically, it's how the hell did he come up with that? The way it moves through different keys and slightly different rhythms as well. And it's the sort of song nobody, I think nobody else in the world would, would ever, ever write it. And uh, there's so many. It's, it's, it's actually not a fair question to say, what is your favourite McCartney song? Because there's so many. But as you ask, that's, yeah. I would say and, that, that's amazing. Is it possible to look at, you know, I've been to see bands with, with, uh, with other musicians and they find it very hard to see music sometimes as entertainment because they're so busy dismantling what's yeah, going yeah. on there. And I can really, I sympathise with that to some extent. But can you move, did you, were you able to move far enough away from what McCartney's doing? Yeah, well, just I, to think I, this is entertaining rather. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, uh, I, I, I was lucky enough to see the Beatles play and that was, blew my head off. Um, but I've well, saw McCartney. Where was that? It was where, where actually, it was somewhere, it was in a marquee, somewhere outside of Manchester and I can't exactly <laughs> remember, remember where it was. But because our... I was with a band that was with an, uh, Kennedy Street, which is an agency in Manchester, and Danny Batesh, who is still our agent and runs the, um, uh, promoted this concert with Brian Epstein because they were very friendly. So anyway, the upshot of it was that I was right in the front and the Beatles came on and it was incredible. Um, and, but then uh, we saw McCartney at the uh, Teenage Cancer Trust concert at the uh, Royal Albert Hall a few years ago. And so to answer your question, the answer is no. When I'm watching him, I just get completely lost in the music and I'm yeah. not analysing songs at all. I might, I, if I'm listening to a record, I might go, yeah, that's... That's a good thing. Or yeah, I can I can talk to other songwriters about it and dissect it. But while it was actually happening and he was performing, I was lost in the music. Do you think he has? Um, there are things he can get away with because he's Paul McCartney. Yes. Go on. Give us an example. Not on his birthday. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of anything particularly negative. We were talking, I, I think, I, we were talking back there about uh, there's a bit in Get Back where he's uh, writing, uh, Hey Jude, the movement you need is on your shoulder, and, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, I'll change that. And John says, No, you won't. Yeah. And it's like on your shoulder, he just left there. You know yeah, what I mean? Whereas, yeah. Well, he can get away with things because he's McCartney. He can try things because he's McCartney. But the. Uh, missteps he's made are so small yeah. compared to what he's, how he's enriched our lives. No doubt about yeah. it. Um, I wasn't that enamoured with his last solo album, I have to say. 
There was one track on it I liked, and then I found out he'd, he'd done that with uh, George Martin oh. many years uh, before. Uh, when Winter Comes, it's called. It's really charming, lovely. I wasn't mad about the rest of it, but you've got to forgive him, because if, when you love someone, you have to forgive them. Absolutely. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Goldman. Yay! This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.